as we've gathered together to worship and uh, uh, for our call to worship this morning, I'd like to direct your attention to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4. We're going to be looking at God's providence uh, today, how God uh, directs and upholds events for the good of his people and for his own glory and the accomplishment of his plans and his purposes. And we certainly see that in Daniel chapter 4 as God uh, deals with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, while the children of Judah are in exile there. The Lord humbles the king and sends him out from his kingdom for a time. And in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, we read Nebuchadnezzar say, At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for, my glory, for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom. Kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're thankful this morning to be able to gather together and offer you our worship and our praise. Lord, we give you praise this morning because your dominion is an everlasting dominion. We give you praise this morning because your kingdom is from generation to generation. Lord, we give you praise this morning because you work your will among the army of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can restrain your hand. And Lord, we give you praise and honor you as the King of heaven. And we give you praise because your works are truth and your ways are justice. And Lord, we stand before you uh, offering you our praise and our worship as we acknowledge our dependence upon you and our need for you and our need for your grace and your kindness toward us in your Son, Christ Jesus. Lord, we're thankful that you sent your Son, Jesus, into the world to fulfill the law and then to fulfill the demands of the law against us as lawbreakers as he died on the cross for our sins. And Lord, we thank you that you have raised him from the dead and that he is even now at your right hand making intercession for us. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit present with us, working in our lives to do that which is pleasing in your sight. And Lord, we pray that your spirit this morning would enable us, empower us to offer you praise, glory, and worship and that is in spirit and in truth. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let me invite you to take out your hymnal and turn to hymn number 120 of Acts. Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. Our text today will be uh, verses 12 through 35. Last week we looked at one verse. Today we'll look at 23. <laughs> so uh, um, looking at uh, Paul beginning 
his journey to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 23, I'm going to begin reading in verse 10 to set it in its context, and then we'll be looking at God's providential care, his protection and provision for Paul, and the provision of transportation to Rome where he will witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in Acts chapter 23, verse 10, we see how he ends up in prison. Now then, there arose a great dissension. The commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that Paul be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard about their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare two hundred soldiers... 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you. And also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea 
and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And commanded him to be put in Herod's praetorium. And so we see Paul protected by God's gracious providence. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're thankful for this opportunity that we have to stand before your word. And Lord, we're thankful that you have spoken to us, and you've spoken to us in a way that is perfect and inerrant. And Lord, we understand and recognize the perfection of your word. We also understand our imperfection and understanding and our dependence upon the ministry of your spirit to lead us into truth. And so Lord, we pray today that as your word is proclaimed, as your truth is exposed, explain. Lord, that your spirit would awaken our hearts, open our hearts to hear and to understand and to believe your word. And Lord, we also pray that principles of your word and, and, and comfort and grace from the doctrine of your divine providence would be a source of comfort and encouragement for us. Lord, as things seem to be spinning out of control to us, may we rest in the assurance that you are in control and that you are working your plan and your purpose and you will protect and provide for your servants. And so, Lord, grant us the courage and the grace to serve you faithfully, trusting in your providence, your power, and your work in our world. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, and so as we come to this section in the, uh, the, book, of, uh, the book of Acts, we are going to see Paul on his way to Rome. After he had been arrested, after starting three riots in Jerusalem, arrested, put in the barracks, the Lord Jesus appeared to him, and offered him words of comfort, words of encouragement. We talked about last week, take cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, you will also bear witness to me at Rome. And so now beginning here, we see Paul's trip to Rome. He will go to Rome. He will not go to Rome the way he had expected or the way that he had planned or the way that he had hoped. He will go to Rome in chains as a prisoner of the Roman governorate governor uh, escorted by Roman soldiers, but to Rome he will go. And when he gets to Rome, he will faithfully witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the household of Caesar and among the praetorian guard that is there. And so we are beginning to track Paul's journey to Rome. And Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, devotes a lot of attention to this journey. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at Paul on his way to Rome. And we will see that Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so writing words breathed out by God, words that God claims as his own, spends a lot of ink, uses a lot of paper uh, tracing this journey. And the emphasis will be on Paul's relationship and his witness to the Roman authorities, to the Roman soldiers, the Roman governor, uh, the Roman officials, and ultimately appealing his case to Caesar himself. And so uh, Luke feels that this is very important. The Holy Spirit, inspiring Luke, feels that this is very important, that we see that the Roman soldiers, the Roman officials, the Roman commanders were important in preserving Paul, keeping him alive, and delivering him to Rome where he would bear witness and it's these Roman soldiers and these Roman officers, these Roman officials that are protecting Paul from his own countrymen, his own people 
that have committed and determined to kill him. And so in this uh, passage and through the, book, the rest of the book of Acts, we are going to see God's providence. God working to preserve, to provide for, to protect his servant, and ultimately to provide transportation to him to Rome where he will be a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this passage, we're really going to focus on God's providence. And I'd just like to remind you from our statement of faith what we believe about providence. Our statement of faith says what we believe about providence is we believe that God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass. And he perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events. But he does so as not in any way to be the approver of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures. And so God directs and he controls all events, incorporating the decisions made by humans, intelligent creatures who are sometimes acting in their own self-interest. God uses those actions, those decisions, those works for the accomplishment of his purpose, the accomplishment of his plan. And we see that very clearly in this particular passage, we see God's providence. God providentially protecting, providing for, preserving his servant Paul and providing transportation for him on his journey to Rome. And, and God's providence stands uh, in contrast and works in light of a conspiracy in this text. And so the first thing that we see in this text is a conspiracy is born. A conspiracy is formed. Uh, verse 12, when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. And so a conspiracy is when a, one or more people, or two or more people, a group of people get together and agree together to do something that is a violation of the law. And in our our uh, uh, legal system, not only is what they conspire to do a crime, the, the, the legal, illegal act is a crime for which they can be tried, but you can also be tried for entering into a conspiracy. Uh, and so if you, if you conspire with people to do something wrong and you actually do it, then you face two charges. <laughs> the charge of conspiracy and the charge of the criminal act that you had performed together. And so these men, 40 men, 40 men come together and they conspire to kill Paul. And you see that they are very serious about this conspiracy. They are so serious that they say they are not going to eat or drink until they have killed him. And so they want to do it pretty fast, pretty quick, you know, before, before breakfast. We want to make sure we kill Paul because we don't want to miss a meal. <laughs> we certainly don't want to uh, not drink. That's not good for us. And so they are committed. They are in a hurry. They are very serious about killing Paul. So these 40 men come together, form a conspiracy, and so you can see that Paul would be in great danger. They are committed, and also the level of their commitment, the word that is used, uh, verse 12, they're under an oath, and then uh, uh, verse 14, we have taken a great oath. This oath is actually a, 
a, a, a coming together and making a, a uh, uh, it, it carries the idea of even pronouncing a curse against you. If we do not kill Paul, may God kill us, is really the, 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 the extent of their oath. They are announcing a curse upon themselves if they do not succeed in their conspiracy. They're in a hurry, they're not going to eat or they're not going to drink. They are totally committed to killing Paul and they are so serious about it that they even pronounce upon themselves an oath, very similar to the oath that Jezebel made uh, in, in 1 Kings. You remember Ahab, uh, I mean Elijah, had made himself an enemy of the state. He had announced that it wasn't going to rain for three years, accepted his word, and he went for three years and uh, uh, was provided for by God's providence through the widow at Zarephath. And after three years, he was told to go present himself to the king and to call all of the prophets of Baal uh, to Mount Carmel, where there would be a great showdown uh, to determine who is really God in Israel. Is it Jehovah, the Lord God, Yahweh, uh, the God of Israel, or is Baal really God? And, and Elijah gets the 400 prophets of Baal and has this context, this, this showdown on Mount Carmel. Whichever God answers with fire from heaven, he is the Lord. He is the God that we will serve. And God the Father, God Yahweh, the Jehovah God, answered with fire from heaven and demonstrated his sovereignty and his power. And all the people in Elijah slew the 400 prophets of Baal right there on Mount Carmel. Well, when the queen, when Queen Jezebel heard about that, she made an oath. And she said, so let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow this time. And so Jezebel told Elijah, 24 hours, I am going to kill you. I'm going to do the same thing that you did to those prophets of Baal, and may the Lord do that to me, or may the gods do that to me, if I do not kill you, well, that's the same type of oath that these conspirators made. They're in a hurry. They are serious. They pronounce an oath upon themselves. May God kill us if we do not kill Paul. Because they are fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus made on the last night of his earthly life. You remember in John chapter 16, verse 2, Jesus told his men, The time will come when whoever kills you will think they are doing service to God. And so these men believed that Paul was a threat to God and God's law and the law of Moses and the religion of Israel, that Paul was a threat and this doctrine that he was preaching was harmful. And they believed that they were serving God by killing Paul. And they committed themselves to it so seriously that they said, if we don't kill Paul, may God kill us because they believed that they were serving God and conspiring against Paul. And so we see this conspiracy, and we also see that these conspirators, these 40 men who had come together, they have powerful allies in their conspiracy. Look at verse 14. They came to the chief priest and the elders, and they said to them, We have bound ourselves under a great oath, we have sworn that we will kill Paul and we will eat nothing until we have succeeded, until we have killed Paul. And they tell the chief priests and the elders, Now you therefore, together with the council, 
suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So they conspired with the chief priests and the elders. So they have powerful partners in their conspiracy, and these chief priests and the elders, the leaders of the council, become a part of the conspiracy. They are going to tell the commander... We've got some more questions that we want to ask Paul. You remember the commander had already convened a meeting of the council because he wanted to know what was going on. He wanted to know what Paul had done that made everybody so mad. He wanted to know why everybody in Jerusalem was trying to kill Paul. And so he convened the council, but uh, he didn't get any answers because a riot broke out in the council. And so the, the council then is going to tell the commander, we got more questions we want to ask Paul. And surely the commander would probably agree to that and bring him because he wants to know what's going on. And so the conspirators have powerful partners in their conspiracy. The whole chief priest and the elders and the council, they're going to say, bring Paul down, but we're going to have an ambush. And as they bring him from the barracks to the council, we will kill him while he is on the way. And so this is a serious conspiracy. This is a significant threat. Paul is in great danger. There are 40 men laying in ambush. There's the power of the chief priests and the elders and the council behind it. And so this is a significant threat to the safety, to the life of Paul, to the safety and life of God's faithful servant. And so we see this conspiracy. This conspiracy is born, this conspiracy is formed, it comes together with very powerful people, and it is a significant threat. Paul is in grave danger, apart from God's providence, God acting providentially. And so uh, uh, we, see the, we see the conspiracy is born, and then the second thing we see is that the conspiracy is exposed. The conspiracy is exposed. Verse 16. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now this is an important verse because this is the only verse in all of the New Testament where we learn something about Paul's family of origin. It's very interesting, you know, Paul never writes about his family. In all 13 letters in the New Testament, he doesn't write anything at all about his family of origin, other than the fact that he is, was born a Roman citizen. And we learn some things about his family there. And most scholars believe that when Paul writes that he had lost all things for the sake of the gospel, that one of the things that he is writing about that he has lost is that he has lost all of his family relationships because of his conversion to Christianity because of his faith in Christ, because of the calling that Jesus had placed upon his life. And so all of these good Jewish people, these, these rabbis, these leaders of the faith, when their son Paul became a Christian, when he put his faith in Jesus Christ, when he, when he renounced the uh, empty religion of the, of the people of his day, the Pharisees and all of that rules-based, work-based legalistic religion when he renounced that and began to preach the, the good news, the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, his family disowned him. They didn't want anything to do with him. He was dead to them as he had abandoned the faith of their fathers they believed 
and put his faith in Jesus, which actually was a fulfillment of the faith of their fathers, but they did not see that, most likely Paul was dead to them. His family of origin, his earthly family, cut all ties with him, except here we see that the only verse in all the New Testament that tells us anything about Paul's family of origin, we find out he had a sister, and his sister had a son. And so by God's providence, God's providence, Paul's nephew was in a position to overhear of this conspiracy. And the language that Luke here, uh, uses here shows that he was probably very closely associated with these 40 men. You know, maybe he was a part of the gang. He was a part of the group and, and he came together and they made this secret conspiracy and he was in a position to hear of it, to overhear the words that were being said and by a prick of his conscience, even though maybe his family had disowned Paul, he still felt the obligation, the duty, the responsibility to expose the conspiracy. And so we see by God's providence, Paul's nephew was somehow in a position to overhear this conspiracy that was being formed, this conspiracy that was being made against Paul and against his life. By God's gracious providence, somehow, some way, by God directing the events and the actions, he had Paul's nephew in a position to overhear the conspiracy. And so his nephew went to the prison, to the barracks, and by God's providence he was able to visit, and he told Paul, of the conspiracy. And Paul called one of the centurions, one of the captains of the guards, and told him to take this man to the commander because he has something to tell him. And he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Verse 19, then the commander took him by the hand, went aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you that you will deliver Paul to the council, and they are going to kill him while he is on the way. And so we see God's providence working all of these details, all these things coming together to ensure that that conspiracy is exposed. The conspiracy has been formed, Paul is in great danger, but by God's providential action, the conspiracy is brought to light, the, uh, or at least to the eyes of the commander. The conspiracy is exposed. And so God acts providentially, even in the midst of this conspiracy, he works providentially to bring the conspiracy to light, to expose it, and then he works providentially to thwart the conspiracy and to make sure that it does not succeed. God is working to providentially protect and provide for his servant, for the Apostle Paul, and he is also working to provide uh, transportation for Paul to go to Rome. And so here we see the conspiracy is thwarted. Look at verse 23. Amazing. The commander, he calls two centurions, so a lieutenant colonel calls two captains, saying, prepare 200 soldiers 
70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. This commander is not taking any chance. He is not going to let Paul be killed under his watch. And, uh, and this commander is acting in his own self-interest. <laughs> you know, he's not trying to get Paul to, to, to Rome so that he might testify to the Lord Jesus. That's not what's on, on the mind of the commander. The commander is concerned about one person, the commander. He is concerned about his own self. Paul is a Roman citizen. And Paul is in his custody. And if a Roman citizen were killed by a mob as a result of a conspiracy, then who's going to get in trouble? Who's going to answer to Felix? Who's going to answer to Caesar if this Roman citizen in his protective custody is murdered by a mob? The commander knows that he would get in big trouble. Having a Roman citizen under his custody killed, then he would uh, probably face the same fate as the victim of the conspiracy at the hands of his authorities. And so this Roman officer, this commander, is acting in his own self-interest. He cares about himself, and he cares about his place and his position and his head, and so he takes radical action to protect the Apostle Paul. Look at this. There, how many men are in the conspiracy? Forty. And the commander's not taking any chances. He's got a combined force, 200 infantrymen, 70 cavalry soldiers, horse, horse soldiers, and 200 spearmen. And in our day, this is most uh, 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 analogous to the artillery because the spearmen through their spears, and so this is indirect fire. So you have a combined armed task force. You got infantry, you got uh, cavalry, and you got artillery. <laughs> and they're going to outnumber the conspirators 470 to 40. And so this is an overwhelming force. The commander is not taking any chance. There is, he is making sure that there is no way that these 40 men are going to be able to get to Paul they are outnumbered more than 10 to 1. And, and certainly the uh, conspirators, the 40 men, uh, aren't near as well armed as the Roman soldiers because they didn't have any Second Amendment. They didn't have the right to defend themselves. And so, so you've got infantrymen, you've got cavalrymen, and you've got artillerymen, spearmen, 470 of them to escort Paul safely to Caesarea. And so this is an overwhelming force. And the commander is acting in his own interest. And he commands this force be, be formed and that Paul himself be put on a horse and taken quickly and safely to Felix, the governor. And so we see the commander, a free moral agent, evaluating the situation, looking at all the facts that are available to him. There's a conspiracy Paul's a Roman citizen, he's in my custody, and uh, they're going to tell this lie that the council needs to in, in, inquire of him, and as I'm bringing him to the council, they, they are laying an ambush, they're ready to kill him. 
And so he evaluates all the information, all the facts at his disposal. He evaluates the situation in accordance with his own interest. And he decides, as a free moral agent, doing what he wants to do to serve himself, that he is going to provide this overwhelming force to get Paul out of town and to get him to Caesarea, to get him away from these people who want to kill him. And so we see the commander acting freely in his own interest. But we also know that beyond the act, behind the action of the commander is the gracious providence of God. God working through this free agent to make his, making his own decisions in, in accordance with his own interests, but God is using that and working that through his providence to ensure Paul's safety. He's protecting for Paul, protecting Paul, providing for Paul, and even beginning the route to Jerusalem, providing transportation for Paul to go to Rome. And so, uh, so God's great providence. And you, you want evidence that this commander is working in his own interest? Look at the letter that he writes. He wrote the letter in the following manner, and it's amazing. Luke, uh, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows the letter that was written from the commander to the to the governor, uh, and uh, and such as. And, and so Luke has exactly the words that Claudius Lysias wrote to the most excellent governor Felix. Look at this. Greetings. Now, verse 27, this man is acting in his own interest. Look what he says. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Well, you know what? That's not exactly the way it happened. You remember? <laughs> remember what happened? Uh, the, the, the riot starts, uh, the mob grabs Paul, drags him out of the temple, shuts the door, and they're beating him to death. And yes, the commander does send the soldiers to rescue Paul, but not because he believes, he, knows, he heard Paul was a Roman citizen. The way he's telling this story, you know, I heard Paul was a Roman citizen, and they were about to beat him to death, so I ran and rescued him. That's not the way it happened. Remember, he orders Paul bound and put in chains, and he is taking him to the barracks to beat him, to torture him until he confesses of a crime that he can charge him of. And then Paul says, is that legal to do that to a Roman citizen? And so he had already put him in chains, he had bound him, and then Paul tells him he's a Roman citizen, convinces him, tells him that he's a, a Roman citizen. And so, so notice the commander trying to put himself in the best possible light. And don't we all do that when we tell a story? We want to make it, make it sure that we look in the best possible light that we can. And, uh, and, and, uh, and so that's exactly what this commander's doing. You know, I heard he was a Roman citizen, so I ran down and rescued this man from the mob. That's not exactly the way it occurred. But uh, uh, he's acting in his own interest. And so he sends Paul and uh, tells him, you know, I wanted to know the reason they brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law. It's a religious issue. It's not a civil issue. He hasn't done anything uh, in violation of the customs or law of Rome. He hasn't done anything deserving of change or death. As far as I can ascertain, as far as I can determine, it looks like to me it's a religious issue, an issue of their local law and not Roman law. So we don't have any jurisdiction. And when it was told to me that the Jews lay in wait for him, I sent him immediately to you. But I also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. God's providence is going to ensure that Paul receives due process. He's going to be kept in a safe place until his accusers can come, announce the charges against him so that the governor can weigh the charges, listen to the defense, and make a decision 
about the case. And so God is providentially working through this commander, acting in his own self-interest. God is bringing that together for the good of his servant, protecting, providing for, and providing transportation for Paul to get to Rome where he will faithfully witness to the Lord Jesus. And so now we have a new man who comes in, according to God's providence. This man is named Felix. And Felix, the governor, he is not a good guy. Felix is not a good guy. In fact, one historian writes about him that while he did a great job controlling all the robbers and murderers in Judah, he himself did much more harm than all of them, and his cruelty knew no bounds. And so, yes, he did a good job putting down criminals, robbers, and murderers in Judah, but he himself did more damage than all of the murderers and robbers and criminals and bandits in Judah combined. And he had he would use assassins to carry out his plan and his will, and his cruelty knew no limits. Felix is not a good guy. And Felix puts aside any duty, any justice, any rightness in order to serve his own interests. Felix, the governor, is acting for his own interests. He cares nothing about the people that he serves as their leader, but he cares very much about preserving himself and actually enriching himself, neglecting his duty, his responsibility, the law and justice in order to provide for his own selfish interest. In fact, we will read later that he keeps Paul in prison wanting to do the Jews a favor. And so Felix is not a good guy. He is not working to help Paul. He is certainly not working to advance God's plan and God's purpose. He is not working to to ensure that Paul makes it safely to Rome where he will testify for the Lord Jesus. Felix cares nothing about that. Felix cares about one thing. Felix cares about Felix. And Felix is going to do what is in his best interest. And so he is going to secure Paul, keep him safe from those who want to murder him, and make sure that he gets a fair trial in accordance with Roman laws and Roman customs. His accusers will come and confront him. He will weigh the evidence and he will make a decision because that's in his best interest to to make sure that this Roman citizen is not murdered by a mob under his watch. And so he puts him in prison, keeps him safe. And so here again we see God in his providence working through a wicked, evil human ruler who is acting in his self-interest, but God is using that in order to accomplish his plan and his purpose and protect his servant Paul to provide for him, provide safety, and to provide transportation to him where he will witness and to ensure that he appears before kings, before governors, before officials, and testifies to the Lord Jesus Christ. God is working his plan even through these selfish, evil, wicked rulers who are only acting in their own self-interest. And God is working his plan even in a conspiracy of 40 men coming together, binding themselves under an oath, enlisting the most powerful people in their city, the chief priests and the elders, the rulers of the council in their conspiracy. God works through that to accomplish his plan and his purpose. And so this passage is about God's providence. God decrees and permits every single thing that comes to pass. 
And God perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events. Even though these creatures are acting in their own self-interest, acting wickedly and evil, God is incorporating all of that in his plan to protect, to provide for, and to provide a platform for, for Paul to testify to the Lord Jesus, to get the word of the gospel out. And, uh, and we see this all through Scripture. We see it certainly here. We saw it, we talked about it in Daniel chapter 4 with Nebuchadnezzar and, and Judah. But the greatest example of this is in the cross of Jesus Christ. You've got sinful people acting according to their own sinful self-interest. The chief priests, the elders, the Sanhedrin, the council, the Roman governor Pilate, the king Herod, all of these people acting in accordance with their own self-interest, seeking to preserve themselves to do what they believe will protect their place, their power, their position, their prosperity. They're acting according to their own evil intent and they come together and they conspire to, to, to commit the most sinful, most heinous, most despicable, most rebellious act in all of human history. They all come together and conspire to kill the Son of God. They come together and conspire to kill God, the Son who had come into the world, Jesus of Nazareth. And they're acting in their own self-interest and what they do is evil, it is wicked, and they are responsible, and they will give an account for their wickedness, for their evil choice, for their evil decision as they murder God the Son, the Son of God. But we know as we've gone through the book of Acts, all this happens according to God's purpose and God's foreknowledge and God's will, God's providence. He uses that evil act, the most evil act ever, to accomplish the greatest good ever the salvation of every one of his people because as jesus was lifted up on that roman cross after the jewish crowd had cried crucify him crucify him crucify him after those roman soldiers drove spikes in his hands and his feet and put a crown of thorn on his brow jesus was lifted up on that roman cross to die and as he did god laid on him the iniquity of every single person who will come to him in repentance and faith. God judged the sin of the world as Jesus died on the cross. And so this wicked, evil act accomplishes the greatest good, the salvation of all who come to Jesus in repentance and faith, the salvation of all who believe. Jesus died on that Roman cross, and God raised him from the dead to show his sacrifice was accepted, and God's wrath has been turned away. And now he commands us to turn from our sin and put our trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And when we do... We are born again to new life. God providentially worked through those evil people to bring about the death of his son so that he might bring about the salvation of every single person that he purposed, that he chose to save. And now through his providence, God ensures that every one of the elect will hear the proclamation of the gospel. He, through, through millions and zillions of acts of providence, he ensures that every single one of his elect will hear the proclamation of God's grace, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And they will hear the human proclamation of the gospel. And in that human proclamation, he will issue an effectual call and they will turn from their sin. They will put their trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation and be born again to new life, everlasting life. God providentially acts in every human activity every creature, every event to bring about his sovereign will 
the expansion of his kingdom, the salvation of his people, and their preservation and perseverance, even when the world thinks that they are doing service to God and trying to kill him. And so we see God's great providence. He's acting in this conspiracy. He acts to make sure this conspiracy is exposed, and he acts in his providence to make sure this conspiracy is thwarted. So we have all these people acting in their own self-interest, but we also have God working in his purpose and his will providentially to bring about his will. So what are we to learn from this passage? Well, I think we should learn that uh, when it looks like everything's spinning out of control, God's in control. When it seems like everything is hopeless, God is working to give us hope and to bring about the reality of our hope, to bring our hopes to pass. Paul started three riots in one day that he starts, found himself beaten and bloody in prison, and yet God is working to protect him, to preserve him, and to provide the way for him to continue to be a faithful, effective witness for the Lord Jesus. And so when things seem like they're spinning out of control, when it looks like there's a conspiracy against us, and it's really dangerous and it's overwhelming, we can be assured that God is working. God is working this plan. He's working this prevalence. He's working through these selfish, wicked people trying to accomplish their own ends and their own interests, acting in their own self-interest. God is working through all of that to protect, to preserve, to provide for his people. And God is not going to lose a single one of his children. He is working providentially to carry out his purpose and his plan. And so we're encouraged as we see God's providence, even in the midst of this conspiracy, and using even the wicked, evil, self-centered rulers acting in their self-interest to actually carry out God's purpose, God's plan. Unintentionally, unknowingly, but they are incorporated in God's plan. So don't lose hope, don't lose heart. When things look hopeless and helpless, remember that God is in control and that he is providentially working his plan, and his purpose. And he will not lose a single one of his children. And so find hope and help in that and and also know that, you know what? Serving God is worth it. Paul might uh, be discouraged. You know, he's seen these riots. He's almost been ripped in two. He's been beaten and bloodied, almost beaten to death. And he might be saying, you know, what's the use? What's What's the good of all this? You know, I've I've testified, I've been beaten and bloodied and thrown into prison. It's hopeless. The world is against me. There's these powerful people conspiring against me, taking an oath to kill me before they eat another meal. But the Lord Jesus encourages Paul, persevere. Trust in God's providence. Trust in God's work. He will use all of these events to ensure that the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. The gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And he will do it in the way that brings him the most glory and brings the most joy to his servants, even though we don't see it. And so serving him is worth it. Even when it looks like we're defeated, there's nothing good can come out of this. The enemy is too powerful. Persevere and endure and believe that God is working 
his plan and his purpose through his gracious acts of providence, even working through our enemies, incorporating them into his plan to bring about his purpose, the expansion of his kingdom and the glory of his son, Lord Jesus. So persevere, endure, and know that God's hand, God is working to protect, to preserve, that we might persevere and that we might have a platform to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And to believe that through that human proclamation, God will providentially work and issue his effectual call so that those he has chosen will respond with repentance and faith and be born again to new life, everlasting life. Be faithful, persevere, trusting in God's providence and knowing that he is working his plan and his purpose for his glory and for the good of his people. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this passage, and Lord, we thank you for how it encourages us. Lord, we see the danger that Paul is in as these powerful people come together and form a conspiracy. But Lord, we see you work through people and you working in their own self-interest to bring about your purpose and your plan. And God, we pray that as we go through life in enemy territory, that we would not lose heart, that we would not lose hope, that we would persevere, we would endure, we would stay faithful, we would not grow discouraged, we would not drop out of the race, we would not drop out of the fight, but we would trust your providence to preserve, to protect, and to provide for. And then, Lord, we pray that you would find us faithful, even in enemy territory, to proclaim the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to add to our human call the effectual call and that you would add to our number those that are being saved. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let me invite you to take out your hymnal and turn to Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.